Grace and peace to you all this morning. So our uh, message series right now is the Sermon on the Mount, because it's sort of the doorway to Christian life. And we thought, uh, what, what better way to start a whole new thing as officers here than to start with uh, the idea of how to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And if you really want to know who Jesus is and what he believes and what he taught, the Sermon on the Mount is the place to go. Because it's all in there. If you want to know what Jesus expected from the people who followed him, the Sermon on the Mount is the place to go because he lays it all out there. And if you wanted some helpful tips for how to figure out what the right choices are so that you can become all that you were created to be, the Sermon on the Mount is the right place to go. Because not only does he lay it out, he gives examples of how in your day-to-day life you can apply the things that he teaches. It's all in there. Now, the thing to remember is that Jesus was being followed by large crowds. And if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles on the table there, um, this is Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. This is the section right before Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus is out, he's got this reputation as a healer, as someone who can deal with demons, he can help you cope with the pain in your life, figure out how to move through it. And he was followed by a lot of people. Now, how many disciples did Jesus have? It's funny, every time I ask that question, I get that answer, 12. But that's not actually correct. He had hundreds or thousands of disciples at any given time. People who followed him from place to place. He would choose 12 specific guys later and he would make them apostles. They were disciples of his, but he would make them apostles, these special messengers who were supposed to carry his teaching out into the world. And a little while after that, he would choose 72 others and he would send them out to teach the good news too. Even now, in modern times here in the church, there are some disciples who are chosen to carry a message out to the world and others who are expected to stay in their home community and tell the people there about Jesus. Someone wasn't greater because they were picked to be someone who was sent out and no one was less because they were picked to be on the home team. We all have our own places, our own things to do. But among those people who followed Jesus... Those hundreds or even thousands at times of people who followed Jesus, some were serious about it, and others weren't. They were just along for the show. Because how exciting is it to see this guy heal people? To to restore the ability to walk to someone who has never walked. To give sight to someone who has never seen. How cool is that? To see him... Approach a man shrieking because he's possessed and in pain and to just lay a hand on him and see that pain pass, that demon leave. 
but just following didn't make you a disciple. There was a, a special word uh, in Hebrew for disciples. It was Talmudim. To be a Talmudim meant that you wanted to be your teacher. You wanted to be your rabbi. So the people who were following Jesus weren't just saying, hey, we want to know who you are and what you're about. They were saying, we would like to be like you. That's what anyone who claimed to be a disciple was was claiming. But these huge crowds kept gathering of all these people who said they wanted to be disciples. We want to be like you. We want to do what you do. Know what you know. Teach what you teach. So Jesus took all of them out onto a mountain. Hundreds of people gathered with him on this mountain. And he said, in essence, look, if you follow God's path, these are the things that are true. That's what we went through last week. The Beatitudes, we call them now. It's eight Proverbs, eight truths of life. That if you bend your life to follow God's way instead of your way, these are the eight things that happen in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who crave righteousness like a starving man craves food. Blessed are those who show mercy, who make room for God in their thoughts, who give all they have and all they are to be at peace. And blessed are those who do this in the face of all opposition, because none of that makes any sense in a godless world. So that's what it means to follow. And Jesus said to all of these people out there, look, this is how you follow God. But what if we don't? What if we don't want to do that? What if we just want to follow Jesus and see the show? We want to see the healings and the exorcisms and hang out at the parties. I mean, that's all pretty epic stuff, right? Who doesn't want to party with Jesus? Jesus hung out with a fun group of people. He spent so much time at parties, his critics would bring it up like it was wrong to enjoy life. Hey, John the baptizer, they would say, John, he went out and hung out in the desert. The man ate bugs. He wore uncomfortable camel hair clothing. And you, Jesus, you're always at parties. You wear linen clothes. They accused him of being a drunk, of hanging out with a bad crowd. Jesus said, when there's a wedding in progress, you celebrate. You celebrate. You have a party. Life is meant to be fun. So what if we just want to hang out with him and his peeps, but we don't want to get tangled up in all of his crazy ideas about how to live? Can't we just be followers without being disciples? As soon as Jesus finished talking about those eight Proverbs, in Matthew 5.13, he said to his disciples, his followers, those people who were there listening to him, he said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt of the earth, that's a good thing, right? The salt of the earth. Salt is and was a valuable commodity. How many of you put salt on your food this morning? Salt was amazing. Salt was a preservative. It would keep things from decaying. It could be packed into wounds to prevent infection. It could be mixed with manure to make better fertilizer. Salt was used for trade. It was used for currency. It was even used to pay Roman soldiers in certain regions. That's how valuable it was. 
And, and some people, I know this is crazy, some people do use it to flavor their food. I swear it's true. Did you know you can use salt to find water? This is an old trick. The tribesmen use this in the Kalahari. If they're having trouble finding water, people often have trouble finding water. Animals never have trouble finding water. Monkeys in particular. Monkeys are smart. So, whereas you might be able to shadow a herd of elephants as they go hunting for water or whatever, the sad reality is elephants can go a lot longer without water than people. But monkeys are about the same. They need to get water on a pretty regular basis. Like, people need to get water on a pretty regular basis. So the tribesmen... They would try to follow the monkeys. But the monkeys don't like to give up their sources of water because they know if other people or animals follow them to their water source, that it might get drank up and then they, they wouldn't have it anymore. So monkeys hide. And apparently people are not very good at following monkeys. So in order to find water, the tribesmen would catch a monkey and they would feed him like two or three spoonfuls of salt and then let him go. And the monkey, being suddenly very thirsty, very craving for water because he'd been fed this salt, the monkey would go right to the nearest water source and the people would just follow it and then they would find water. So there you can use salt to find water in the desert. Assuming you are fast enough to catch a monkey. Kind of a neat trick. And it tells you it's just a little bit about how salt is valuable in ways you don't even necessarily think about. And that's how Jesus is just described as disciples. The salt of the earth. There's this amazing, useful element that's essential to life and tasty on popcorn. And you're just like it. That's what he says about his disciples. And here he's just finished telling them how they need to be people who acted in ways that were outside the norms of their society. But then he's offering them this heartwarming comparison to something that's precious. You are valuable, like salt. And if he had stopped there, everyone would have just gone home feeling good about themselves, even if they had no idea what to make about the whole countercultural message he had been sharing before. Uh, but Jesus never stops at heartwarming. Uh, let me read all of Matthew 5.13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, I need to be upfront with you. People argue about what this means. There's a lot of arguing about what it means. Back in that day, people were not so good at getting pure salt. So some people think Jesus was referring to how sometimes these impure salts, when they were left out, the elements would kind of leach the salt out and you'd be left with all the non-salt. Just the impurities. And when that happened, what was left was flavorless, tasteless, kind of gritty, um, and it wasn't really good for much. People would take that stuff and they would throw it on their roofs because it helped harden the dirt. And as you walked around on it, it would pack it down. It would make a little, little shell. Made the roof more durable, which is good. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about, though. Because, see, salt, as an element, it's stable. Salt doesn't lose saltiness. How many of you have ever taken salt out of your cupboard and looked at the expiration date and said, Oh, this expired yesterday. It doesn't taste like salt anymore. It doesn't happen, does it? 
salt is is salt. Salt is a stable element. It doesn't break down. It doesn't lose its saltiness. It's like water. Water, you know, you buy a bottle of water, it has an expiration date on it because it's food, and the FDA says all food has to have an expiration date. But if you drink it a day after it expires, it's not like you're going to go, oh, my water's gone bad. It's curdled. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. Salt, without the key characteristic of salt isn't salt anymore. Jesus says salt that loses its saltiness is worthless. Well, yeah, because it wouldn't be salt anymore. And that's not confusing enough. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. And like salt, light is considered a good thing. In fact, universally it's considered a good thing. In every single religion, light is the good side. Dark is the bad side. There was a guy, Pliny the Elder. He tried to write a natural history. Uh, it was kind of like the first encyclopedia in the world. He says that there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. These are the two key elements that we all need to live. Salt and sunshine. And Jesus, Matthew 5.14, says you are the light of the world. And he goes on to say, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. A city on a hill can't be hidden. You know the main construction material they used back in uh, Jesus' day and in, in Palestine where he lived? White limestone. So they would carve these limestone blocks and build them into houses. They put them up on hillsides because it's more defensible. So a city on a hill would gleam. It reflected the sunlight. It was shining. It was a, as I say, a beacon. It, it's, it was a city on a hill. There was no other description for it at the time. It was just something that was there. It was blinding. It could not be missed. And at night, the people in those little villages, they'd all light their oil lamps. And the light from the oil lamps would shine like a lighthouse out off that hillside. A city on a hill can't be hidden, daytime or nighttime. Same thing happens here. Light pollution. We live in a nice dark valley, right? We can look straight up and see some of the stars sometimes. But if you look south, there's always that glow from the city lights. Even if you had never left the valley, you would know there was some kind of settlement over the hill because of the light coming off of all of the city down there. And when it's dark in a room, you don't light a lamp and then turn around and cover it up. You don't go into a room, flip the light switch, and then go break the light bulb. Because you need the light. You don't want to stand in the dark. It would be foolish to turn on a light and then black it out, to say the least. Lights are lit to shine and dispel darkness. In Matthew 5.16 Jesus goes on, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Like a lamp that's been lit, we're supposed to shine in the darkness. Like a city on the hill, we're supposed to reflect the Son of God out so that everyone can see. 
Like salt, we're supposed to preserve the world from infection and decay. And while you're at it, you're supposed to make the people around you thirsty for the water of life. Because that's what salt does. Because if you're not living life the way you're created to, what's the value in that? What's the point? A lot of times people say, oh, life, life is meaningless. Life is pointless. And you know what? If you're not living to enjoy life, to be greater, then you're right. It's pointless. If you say that you're a follower of Jesus, if you say that you're one of his disciples, but you don't live what Jesus teaches, you are not a follower of Jesus. You're just an observer hanging out for the show. Instead of being an observer, be a follower of Jesus. It's not about following a set of rules, by the way. You may or may not have noticed when we went through the Beatitudes last week, none of them was ever given as an instruction. Jesus just said, this is the way it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all about the choices you make and how you make them. Now last week, most of you stood up to say that you were going to make a commitment to do your best to live the way that Jesus said we should for a week. How'd that go? Good. 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 Your commitment's over. It's been a week. Now, I, I confess I'm going to ask you to make the same commitment again. If you are willing to choose to do your best to follow Jesus as a disciple and not just an observer for the next week, you know, I'm going to make it two weeks. That one week was too easy for you, so we're going to make it two weeks. If you are willing to choose to do your best to follow Jesus as a disciple and not an observer for the next two weeks, raise your hand. Me too. I'm with you. Just asking for two weeks. Just two weeks. For the coming two weeks, we promise to do our best to live the lives Jesus said for us to live. You with me? Really? Didn't just raise your hand so that I wouldn't look at you? Make you feel uncomfortable? Well then, two weeks from today, we're going to learn about what it means to follow the way without worrying about following the law. Follow the way of Jesus, not the law. And if you want to know what it means to not have to follow the law, I guess that means you have to be here Sunday morning, two weeks from today. Don't just go break the law. Trust me. We're going to close our uh, teaching time this morning with a word of prayer. Father, you, um, through your Son, have asked us to be salt and light and all these things that affect the world around us. As we have made a commitment to try to do what you've asked for the next two weeks, I pray that you would give us opportunities 
to reflect your light to the world around us, to be the preservative that uh, you intend for us to be, the flavoring that you intend for us to be. And I ask that you would help each and every one of us have opportunities to dispel the darkness from around us. Lord, as we go out of this place and into the real world, help us to remember that real worship doesn't happen inside these walls. It's what happens outside. Help us to worship you by doing what you have created us to do. and Help us to come back here to celebrate the... uh, ways that we have grown over the time that we do what you ask us to do. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.